Sage's Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Sage's Stories, the official podcast of Sage's, the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. Please make sure to hit the like button and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our most recent episode and enjoy the show. All right, we're back with episode three of Sage's Stories, where we shine the light on some of Sage's most impactful leaders. I'm your co-host, Kevin L. Hayek coming to you from still fantastic Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> and I'm Sharon Tofai, tuning in from still sunny Los Angeles, California. How's the weather over there, Kevin? I think the leaves may not be green anymore. I don't know. No, they're changing. They're changing. I so, mean, we're at yeah. around 72 degrees, so I'm pulling out my sweatshirts and sweaters. It's getting kind of chilly. Oh, very funny. Very funny. But, but believe it or not, it, this is actually my favorite time of the year in Ohio. We're still hanging on to some nicer temps during the day, nice cool breeze at night. Winter is coming, however. Yeah. I don't know what winter means. It's a foreign word. You should come visit. I'll come if, if I need to thaw this winter, I'll come out there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, well, enough of that. Let's get this show started. Today, we are uh, blessed to spend some time hearing from Dr. Aurora Pryor, or Rory, as most of us affectionately call her. She is well known to our SAGE's audience and has served as in many leadership capacities, including most recently as the president of our society from 2019 to 2020. Rory yeah. is currently a is currently professor in chief of bariatric foregut and advanced gastrointestinal surgery, as well as the vice chair for clinical affairs at Stony Brook University Department of Surgery in New York State. Thank you, Rory. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. And and while you have many titles listed on your CV, I, I think there's one she left out that I, I'd actually like to share with our <laughs> listeners before. We hear from, from her. She knows where this is going. But this story oh, starts no. with the time I met Rory in 2011 during the Minimally Invasive Surgery Fellows course in Sedona, Arizona. Now, this was the illustrious and, dare I say, the best MIS class of 2012, which includes some no notorious sagers like Eric Pauli, Dana Tellum. Oh, so she was busy cranking out papers, and I think she missed the course. Uh, J.B. Bittner, Ross Goldberg, many others, but Rory was one of the faculty along with a star-studded crew, including Patricia Turner, Todd Henniford, Nin Nguyen, Adrian uh, Park, so it was just jam-packed. Where was so, I? Why was I not invited? Yeah, I feel like well, I missed out. <laughs> so after days filled with faculty sharing their wisdom and knowledge to the newest members of the field, we would gather at the game room filled with video games, foosball, ping pong. Well, anyway, one night we had a famous Wii boxing tournament and I was on my way. I was just cruising through my bracket and I, I ran into Rory in the semifinals. And I, I thought, oh man, I'm all set for this finals match against our newly minted executive director of the American College of Surgeons, uh, Patricia Turner. Yep. But boy, was I wrong. Uh, I thought I was pretty good at video games, but I was humbled that night, and Rory went on to become the undisputed Wii boxing champion 
of the MIS Fellows course in 2011. So, wow. Fun times, definitely a great story that everyone should know about Rory. And we are just so thrilled for you to join us tonight. Rory. I'm just so glad it was a video game. If it was in real life, I would have lost badly. So Rory, you may have to explain what a we is. I don't know that <laughs> millennials may not know what a we is. W-I-I. Yeah, it was one of the early interactive video games where you didn't actually have to use a controller except something in your hand. So we yeah. were actually boxing with the controllers in either hand. Oh my so gosh, it was, uh, reality. lit it up. Yeah. She, I mean, I, I, I was, I thought, man, I'm, I'm on my way to the finals. I was not. <laughs> and Kevin was very hurt, but it was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the competitiveness remember? was oozing out of that room. I mean, we all wanted to win. <laughs> we're all surgeons what do you expect yeah, yeah this, this is, is true. this is true well that's a great story i wish um i'm really hopeful that we'll have even more fun stories because i personally i love sage's stories our podcast if the whole goal is to learn everyone's stories i'm a huge fan of yours um rory i think you already know that um so I would love to hear your story. I'm sure you have a lot of awesome stories to share as a Sage's surgeon leader um, and just kind of your journey so far. So maybe you can start just briefly let us know like where did you grow up? How'd you get to where you are? You're in New York now. So that's you've had quite a journey from you know birth <laughs> now. <laughs> Well, so I, yeah, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I spent my childhood there, went to California a fair amount because my mom's whole family's from there. So that was a frequent visit for us here. And so your home state was one of my favorite destinations as a child, but I went to Duke for undergrad, partially to get away from my family and just go somewhere different. We had a great in-state school with Michigan, but I wanted to try something new. And when I went down to Duke, Duke was doing great in basketball. I actually got to stay on campus, met the people there. And I was like, this is where I want to be. So I applied early decision. And obviously that was a good decision for me because I stayed at Duke for undergrad, med school, residency, fellowship, and then my first faculty position. So I am very Duke blue. Um, had my two children while I was at Duke. I was actually the first woman resident to have a baby at Duke. So that was something I was a little groundbreaking in. Um, well, Duke was, I mean, I remember Duke during your generation. Didn't you have yeah. like a 110% divorce rate or something like that? So those were the rumors and they were probably true before I started there. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't me that was the transition. It was just the transition in the times. I think it got a little kinder and gentler and, and really people tried to support each other, but it definitely... I was the 10th woman to finish because I was third in my class alphabetically. Um, there were not a lot of us historically. And so wow. it was um, breaking in to kind of get that tradition changed and yeah. be supportive. But but they were pretty supportive to me the whole way through. And I really enjoyed my time there. Great. Um, but then I left Duke in 2011, came up to Stony Brook. Um, that was a good challenge for me. I wanted to go lead something different and build something from the ground up. So I got to build the bariatric foregut minimally invasive program here. I really essentially got to hire my whole division, which has been a lot of fun. Wow. Um, good ideas on hiring people, hire people you like, because um, you spend a lot of time with your coworkers. So I've really built a really great faculty that gets along with each other. And that's been a huge pleasure for me here. They're very lucky to have you. Yeah. 
So you, you mentioned your, your, your children. Tell us a little bit about your family. So I met my husband actually as an undergrad at Duke. Um, he was my roommate's math tutor, which is a little funny. And she's like, oh, he's really cute. You might like him. Um, and she pointed that out when he called me and asked me to live together um, before I'd even met him. Uh, turns out we were both summer engineers at General Motors up in Michigan. And there are about 20 or 30 Duke students every year who went up there, but we were the only two anal retentive enough to actually turn our names back into the placement service that we took these jobs. Uh -huh. So we, he called up to find a roommate and I was the only other person. So if there had been a guy, he would have never called me, but turns out there you go. Fate happens. Well, and um, you said, yes, you said, sure. Well, I said, I'm living with my parents, but you can come stay in my brother's room until you can find a place to stay. Well, okay. Yeah. And then we found out we were both sailors, um, went sailing and he actually raced on our boat with us that summer and we started dating and, and the rest is history, but had a great time. I worked for Corvette electrical, wow, which, great. um, at GM. So I got to actually drive the ZR one when that was coming out and got to do fuel economy testing. Cause they expected a woman to be very cautious in her driving. Um, I was supposed mm -hmm. to do it for three weeks and I got to do it for one may tell you a little bit about how I drive. <laughs> but, this is how, this is how you also went in we, this thing had, this followed you through, yeah, so you're, it was no holds bar, I can, I can imagine. No holds bar, it was real. it was, uh, yeah, but I got paid to go do that, which was pretty amazing, and he was working on police cars, not nearly as fun. That's pretty cool, and um, so you had, you have two children? Oh yeah, and I didn't even get to that, so we yeah. met, um, got married, had had children. So my um, son is 23. His name is Sage. I actually had him before I was in Sages. So um, not named after the society. And my daughter is 20. Her name's Ariana and she's actually back at Duke. So she's a junior there now. That's great. I think you may be, the, you may start a trend. Maybe more people will name their, their kids Sage or Sages or <laughs> or got to be actually much more popular since we had them. It was in the top, you know, 20, 20 or 30 names of last year. That's, I can't believe you have a 20 something year old child. Yeah. You're so young. Thank you. That's pretty amazing. So you had your children during residency? I did both of them. Wow. And did you do the, you know, this generation, they're very good about, you know, giving time off for the residents and so on. But when I was a resident, I remember my co-residents, they literally worked and were on call until they went into labor and came back shortly. So what was your experience? So I had to plan my pregnancy around um, schedules. My son was born when I was in my lab years, so that was easy. My goal was to actually do research and have one the first lab year and one the second, but it took a year to get pregnant. Always the best laid plans don't work out. So. Then with my daughter, I was thinking it would work out well to have her my fourth clinical year. And of course, that also didn't happen quite on, on pace. And she was born July of my chief year. Um, so a little bit of a mess. Um, Duke took all of our vacations then by the calendar month. So I had to take off the month that she was expected to be born with. Um, and she was born July 23rd. So that obviously put a little cap on the um, maternity leave. But the month before that, I still remember they did not get it being pregnant since I was the first. So did a really long open a AAA repair where someone all these little vessels and um, 
as a woman who's very pregnant, your bladder has a lot of pressure on it. And they did not let me take a break. It was, uh, I think my eyeballs were yellow by the end of that case. When the attending left for me to close, um, the nurses said, go, go, go. And then you can come back. So um, I think we're a little more sensitive to things like that now. I think that would never fly in today's residency, at least I hope not. Um, but I, I had her on the 23rd because I actually got induced early so that I could actually get um, enough time off afterwards um, because I had to go back on September 1st. So wow. and a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. But you know, now it seems that you're really doing, you're such an amazing leader, first of all. And I know that for many of us, um, we see you as a mentor, a role model for sure. Um, tell me, did you have a significant role model or mentor that you had either during residency or during your first couple, your first job? And if so, like, how did that help you? And I'd love to learn about that. Yeah, so probably my best mentors were from my residency and fellowship. So Ted Pappas was my program director when I was a resident, and he was fabulous and really did a great job with just how to balance stuff and be efficient um, in practice and really care about your patients. Also, to let go of the reins enough to let your trainees learn. And then Steve Eubanks was my fellowship director and um, really great surgeon, efficient and also a really great person. And they've both been very helpful for me throughout my careers. So they've been great people. And then when I started at Duke, I worked with John Grant, who was a bariatric surgeon who wasn't really well known nationally. He actually kind of grew up through the Duke system, used to do nutrition and, and self-taught himself minimally invasive surgery um, mm -hmm. by starting to do G-tubes and then learning and really very methodical. And I think actually a lot of how I operate actually comes from him where it's a system and there's steps and this is how you do it. And it actually makes it pretty easy to teach when things come in a very straightforward fashion. So I think the three of them shaped me. I'm, I'm just gonna take it back a little bit. When, when did you know you wanted to be a surgeon? Was there like an aha moment or was it you know, a decision that kind of gradually developed or someone in your family? When did you kind of think you were gonna go that route? It's a great question, Kevin, because I'm probably not as surgery history as some people because I was a biomedical engineer and I got this opportunity in undergrad to work with a cardiologist. So I was sure I was going to be a cardiologist. Actually, the first day of my surgery rotation, I was going to be a cardiologist. <laughs> and um, I got sent over to the VA and I was with a really great team there. And the VA then is not quite like the VA today. That was when you actually got to do really hands-on and the attendings oh, wow. weren't there and the residents did a lot. And I remember these two guys um, let me actually make the incision on a AAA as a medical student. And I'm exploring the abdomen with my hand. And it's just not what we do today, but it was pretty amazing. And just that experience and the amount of hands-on I got was really just so cool. And I just love the idea of actually treating the problems we figured out rather than just pontificating about them. And it just fit with my engineering background. And I loved surgery. And I decided then I can do this. I can always bail out knowing me, I would never actually bail out, but I could always bail out if I didn't like the career and I wanted to do something different. And I, I think that set me from day one of that rotation. And probably being at Duke was, it's such an intense academic 
institution, very um, pure in that. Is that what also kept you that to stay within academics and follow their academic pathway? Yeah, I think that's just how I was essentially raised was to be yeah. in, in academics. Everybody did research, everybody did some kind of science, everybody wanted to teach and, and combine all that together because that's how you really make the most impact on the future of surgery is by doing all those things together. Um, so it's just how I was brought up. And did you feel that being an engineer helped you in medical school or did it have any positive or negative consequence? Because, um, you know, there's this whole idea of like, are engineers better in medicine and surgery or are like the fine arts people more? And what is your take on that? So probably medical school engineering was not as helpful. I think the people who had more in-depth of the sciences that we studied in med school might've had it a little easier, but I think as a surgeon, it's great. My visual spatial skill set, I think, is was really well formed from doing engineering. And I think my problem solving and logical brain was trained mm -hmm. being an engineer. So I okay. think it fits really well with a career in surgery. And then I've gotten to do some cool innovation stuff using my engineering with my surgical skill set. And that's been something fun for me to really try to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that was actually one of the things I was fascinated by during your first virtual SAGES uh, presidential address, uh, which was, fan, was just amazing. And you, you talked a lot about innovation. Um, what, are, what are some of the steps that you had to take to enter into kind of device innovation and some of the other realms in surgery? I know now that you have this background in, in driving ZR1s and pushing those to the limit. So I'm guessing that may have played a little bit of a role in it, but, but uh, we're going to see if we can put a link to that talk in the show, show notes, but, but man, it was amazing. And I didn't, I guess I didn't know the depth of the innovation in your, in your career and because you're just so skilled in the academics and the clinical side, but that's definitely been, been a huge part of your career too. Yeah, so I guess I got most involved in my first faculty year. So Steve Eubanks, who I mentioned was my fellowship director, had been doing some innovation stuff too. So he also has that innovation bug, likes to kind of push things to the next level. And he was involved with a company called Barosense. Mm -hmm. When he left Duke my first attending year, he came to me and said, we need somebody to fill in and be their surgeon point person for this company would you be willing to do it? And I'm like, of course, this is what wow. I love to do. So I got to go with them, um, do device development, do the animal testing labs and really kind of innovate this bariatric device. It ended up going really nowhere, but I got involved with the engineers and, and the people behind the scenes that were really trying to bring new products to market. From that same group of people who were sponsoring that device, somebody came to me and said, hey, I want to start a notes company. You know about this notes, this natural orbis surgery thing? And I'm like, well, yeah, let's do that. So we actually went and had a retreat up at um, one of the owner's houses, sat down over a weekend, said, how should we do a notes company? What can we bring to the market? And he was actually an interventional cardiologist. Mm -hmm. And we combined that with my laparoscopic surgery. And we said, well, how do you put these things together? What makes sense? And we came up with essentially something that could go down endoscopically, bend back, have instruments that went through sort of like cardiology catheter approach, but had end effectors more like laparoscopic instruments. And then we backed it up a little bit, said that's a lot of engineering to get to that end product. Let's start with a single port surgery device. 
um, and, and straighten everything out so there's less engineering involved. And that's where we came with the spider, Transenteric Spider, and started that company, Transenteric. So it really came out of a whole weekend of think tanking and putting together ideas and spun that out. And then I got really lucky because as that company evolved and it's now you know, a robotics company, um, but I got to go meet with the venture capital people, got to be part of the pitch with that. We were raising money and, and really saw it from the ground up. So really fun process, gave me ideas how to do things. We're now working on other ideas here at Stony Brook and, and you know, thinking about what's next. I mean, it seems like more and more surgeons are, are, are going back and getting additional formal education to better understand you know, companies, complex healthcare systems. Um, for those who are listening, who aren't in medical practice, it, it may seem incredible that after so much education and fellowship and everything that you'd want to go back and pursue even more education, but, but it's definitely a thing. I, I just started my uh, executive MBA. Uh, I'm going to go to my accounting class right after this, and uh, I see that you got yours as well. What did, when did you get that and, and what made it motivated you to, to go get an MBA and, and was that part of this process as well? Yeah, so Mark Talamini, who was uh, most recently my uh, chairman here at Stony Brook, went and got the MBA through the Heller School, which has an executive program. And I watched him going through that process and what he was learning and just how practical it was for what we do in day to day and how people who are not physicians who are in healthcare leadership speak a slightly different language than physicians who are in leadership. And he told me how helpful it was to be able to speak that language. And, you know, we're all ambitious people. I was thinking, what do I want to do next? And I think being able to be fluent and all that made a ton of sense to me. So I went and pursued that program. The networking was phenomenal. I think the skill set you learn is phenomenal. And even, um, you know, if you don't take it to the next level, some of the stuff like understanding finance or dealing with difficult personalities or, or even, you know, someone just- My wife has to do planning. that <laughs> Yeah, it just, it just made sense. So I, I loved it. I'm really glad I did it. And I think it, it does take you beyond just clinical care in a different way. When did you do it? When did you uh, do that? During I graduated year? in 2019. Oh, okay, so you're a recent grad. Yeah, recent grad. Nice. That's so fascinating. I think engineering and surgery is a perfect partnership because we're, especially in laparoscopic surgery, we're so device and technology oriented. And I really love that. Well, you have the engineering background too, which really helps, but that kind of institutions that really promote that partnership across the different fields and different schools is just fascinating. Um, tell me a little bit about why you chose to go into MIS, laparoscopic surgery, bariatric foregut. And also, if you can also expand a little bit, I'm really curious, working in an institution, how that can be balanced with working in the private sector, like with VCs and so on. So I chose MIS. It came out um, really when I was doing my research years at Duke. So two, two clinical years, two research years. My son was born in my second research year. And I was trying to figure out what's my future look like in surgery and how do you balance this stuff? And I love doing big cases. I was thinking actually of Surgeonk, but then I also saw the surgical oncologists have patients in the house all the time, um, sick patients on the weekend. 
And I wanted to do big cases, but I didn't want to be tied to the hospital all the time. And I realized that MIS was a really good way to do really cool stuff, um, get to play with all the good toys and still go home and have an outside life. So I have to admit, lifestyle was part of the decision to be a minimally invasive surgeon. And then I got exposed to bariatrics probably fourth or fifth year uh, and realized that that was a really good fit. At that point, there really weren't many bariatric specific fellowships. Mm-hmm. So I only did a month of bariatrics as part of my fellowship and, and learned the rest of it um, during my practice. But I realized that that again was a really great push and, and patients do so well. It makes a much happier career, I believe, when you get to fix people and they appreciate it and you make a huge difference in their downstream life. And so bariatrics is one of those careers that really gives back to my patients. And I love that about what I do. And now you're, you're, you are still the program director of the MAS Bariatric Fellowship. At least it says it on your CV. I am still the program director so, of the fellowship. So t- 2011, so 10 years now, you've had a decade of uh, <laughs> program directorship. So tell us a little bit about the program and what is the goal you have for your fellows who graduate from it? What kind of what kind of product are you churning out? So I want my fellows to be committed surgeons. I want them to be good surgeons and I want them to do something that they're passionate about in their careers, whatever that is. Um, if they wanna go build their own private practice, I think that would be you know a great thing for them to do. If they wanna go um, invent something, that's great. If they wanna go be the next best academic surgeon, that's great. But I want somebody who's passionate about what they do, committed to it and, and really dives all in. Um, well, we, we know many of your, your, your fellows and, and you've certainly instilled that in, in so many of them, so. Um, yeah, so it's, it's probably close to time to give it up. And honestly, part of why I've kept it is there's not enough women program directors. Hmm. And, and that's a little yeah. bit tough. My associate program director is amazing and does a great job teaching our fellows and he's very, very engaged, but I also am a little hesitant to give up and take away another woman program director. Mm. <laughs> I hear you. You're also very involved in the surgical society. SAGE is obviously being the, the big one. Um, how do you choose where to direct your focus? And you know, being involved in societies at the leadership level, there's so many committees to be on and you really should be active. How do you balance that with everything else that you do in your life? Yeah, so um, sort of two questions. How do you pick your focus from a surgical society standpoint? Obviously, SAGES is the best. So um, <laughs> you, you got to pick something you love, the people you really like hanging out with and dive all in somewhere. Um, but most people do more than one society and you kind of have to figure out where you want to go. So my other big investment has been ASMBS historically, and I've spent a lot of time with them on a leadership pathway. I've been on their executive committee, um, but most recently I've gotten an opportunity to be on the American Board of Surgery, which uh, mm. is really pretty amazing and really making a huge difference for the future of surgery, but it's also a lot of time. So huge because of the, yeah. the, the, the demands of the board, I've had to back off a bit with ASMBS. And, and that's just the choice. If I hadn't gotten the seat on the board, I think I would have reinvested more in that society. Well, this is the official podcast of Sages. So <laughs> we do, do want to hear a little bit about how you first got involved with yes. Sages. Tell us a little bit about that. So that was 
end of residency, as I decided I wanted to do minimally invasive surgery, I went and met with Dr. Eubanks and sat down and said, okay, this is what I want to do. And he said, well, then you'll need to be my fellow. Um, so I didn't actually go out and interview anywhere else. I just agreed to stay as his fellow. Um, at that point, he was on the exec of SAGES and he said, well, obviously you have to join SAGES. So it was his encouragement got me to join SAGES um, pretty much right after my son was born. So again, his name Sage came before I joined Sages. Um, <laughs> just getting that in there. <laughs> just getting that in there. And then um, no copyright infringement there. Yeah. Yes. Pretty, pretty early on, he said, what, what committees do you want to be on? And I got on research as my first committee, which is really a fabulous committee for an academic surgeon who's just getting involved because you learn how to write grants. You knew what a good grant is. You knew what the committees are looking at. And I learned a ton about research that I think really helped my entire academic career. Um, when Steve became the president of SAGES, he asked me to step up as co-chair of that committee, which was a great opportunity. I got to work with Blair Job, who was a phenomenal mentor and, and Karen Horvath, who had rotated off as chair when Blair took over, um, also was really great and gave me really good advice on, on how to get engaged with the society. Um, Due to a variety of reasons, Blair was pretty short as the chair on that committee. And when he stepped down, I got the opportunity to step up. So I think I was only co-chair for like half a year before I took over as chair. Um, wow. That was a great opportunity for me. I felt really like I had imposter syndrome when I took over as that chair. Uh, but, but I dove in and I think it was just a really good foot in the door with that. I got more visibility to the leadership of SAGES. I got to present at the board meeting, which is what the committee chairs get to do. And, and with that, I got the recognition that led me to getting my seat on the board and then other committee chair opportunities. So what year did you first get involved with SAGES? 98. 98, and then 2019 president. Awesome, really awesome. So you got this very unique experience of experiencing sages as president through the pandemic. Um, pretty, pretty crazy year. Um, how do you see sages evolving over the next decade, having seen how I think very well um, sages adopted last year and this year's meeting for the needs of everyone else in the pandemic? Yeah, I really think that over the last few years we've shown how nimble we are as a society. So a lot of larger societies and, and SAGES really is one now that we're 7,000 people, you would think get kind of mired down in bureaucracy or you know, a lot of other steps that you have to take to get something approved. But we showed that you don't have to do that. And we, we pulled together some key groups of people who really wanna dive in and get stuff done. And we get stuff done. It, you know, the yeah. COVID thing, when, when that came out, we had a group of really, committed leaders who said they wanted to do stuff and we just gave them the opportunity. And, and that's the kind of people that the SAGES members are. They, they take things, run with them and, and make things happen. And so that's where we came up with all of our COVID statements. I think Horacio did a great job over the last year, taking that kind of the next level, figuring out what we needed and, and really engaging in, in our virtual world, which was unfortunate that his presidency was virtual, but I think it pushed us also to really do a good job with that. And then getting to have the first meeting back, really, that was the first big meeting and it was a huge success. We did it safely. Yeah. 
and that shows kind of where we can go. I think, you know, over the next 10 years, the, the upcoming leaders are all open-minded thinkers. And I, I think we're going to have some really cool things come in the floor and, and we want to stay up on AI. I think with our video assessment, we're doing some really cool stuff and, and just re-embracing new technology is who we are. Those, that's the yeah. kind of people Sages draws. And I, I think those are the kind of people that are going to be the cutting edge of surgery, literally. <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> We've affectionately called this next segment, the, uh, we are the Sages segment. Uh, fun fact, we wanted the intro and closing music of the podcast to be the, the We Are the Sages song, but we were shot down by one of our favorite committee leaders who shall remain nameless, uh, <laughs> but you know who you are. So this is our <laughs> sneaky way of getting this iconic song into the show. It's pretty sneaky, right, Rory? Because they'll, they'll put the I, I like a little sneaky. It's okay. Yeah. 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 So, so for this segment, we would like you to share your most memorable and salacious knowing that it is a a, 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 a a g podcast no pg podcast so your most memorable sages moment oh this one's tough there's there's been so many great things i think you know i like the sing-off so i'm going to go to the sing-off because i do think that has something for me and um I remember watching several of the acts when I was kind of a younger person in Sages and I came up to Sally and I said, why don't we have a women's group? And she said, make a women's group. Just so just like I had talked about before, you know, yeah, somebody gets excited. They say, do something. She said, do something. So that's when we came up with the Sages ladies and I decided to make this inclusive. So it was open to any Sages woman or man, but really we've had mostly women come up on stage and, and tried to come up with themes. If you didn't know, the songs were all from um, artists for the most part of the cities that we've been in. And the probably it was the meeting that I had in Nashville when we all got hats and we all went on stage. And my daughter was actually there in that meeting with me. And she got to see this group of diverse <laughs> women up on stage and we were all swinging our hats around. That was just like, this is home. These are great people. And I was just really excited to be able to do that. So long story for leading up to a moment, but I think the moment we got to pull that together was really awesome. This yeah, the Sages stories. That's, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear <laughs> the story. Yeah, so far, I think the sing-off win is always the most memorable and favored part of Sages, even though so much time and energy is spent making an amazing meeting and everyone loves, <laughs> loves the sing-off. Sing yeah. Well, it's fun. I mean, you think about it. I've done some yeah. other cool talks or I've seen some other cool talks, yeah. but um, that's just so much fun all thrown in. It's You can't beat it. Yeah, the Sages sisters or Sages ladies. I love being involved with that every time I go. It's so, it's such a, like a lax informal setting. Anyone can just go up on the on stage and grab one of the hats or one of the other paraphernalia and start singing the song. And I don't know who writes the lyrics. Who writes your lyrics? They're great. Me? <laughs> Thank oh, you. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an art. Yet another another hidden talent that we are uncovering <laughs> tonight. Next time you're gonna go, oh my gosh, what did she write? That is an art <laughs> form for sure. Well, 
thank you for your time. As we close, we're sure that you have some unique perspectives you can share on surgery. You've been so involved in clinical care, teaching, research, innovation, writing lyrics for the sing-off. Um, <laughs> where do you see the field of MIS in the future when you're retired and your children may be future stages leaders? I don't know. But where do you see the future of MIS surgery? So I think we're going to get more and more hybrid, less and less invasive. I think mm -hmm. some of that may be endoscopic, some may be hybrid with radiology procedures, some may be some cool medications that do things and can highlight sort of like we get with immunofluorescence. I think there's some ways there to really narrow down our focus so that we have to do less surgery to do the same thing. I think mm -hmm. some combination of that and probably some advanced robotics where we've got more reproducibility and anastomoses and things like that, not just a stapler, but a whole anastomosis. All, all that stuff added together, maybe we'll get the doctors of the future of Star Trek where you've got your tricorder really doing the thing. <laughs> I, I'd love to see that, but that'll definitely be after I retire, so. Yeah, love it. Thank yeah. you so much. Well, thanks so much. It was a pleasure, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again at uh, the next Sages meeting in Denver, March 16th and 19th, 2022. And uh, until then, keep, uh, keep, keep your head high with that title, that we title you have. So, Yay. Thank you so much, Rory. That was fantastic. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And that wraps up today's episode of Sages Stories. You can view the show notes for additional information mentioned on the show. Also, please visit sages.org for membership information and for the most recent news from our society. Follow us on Twitter at sages underscore updates. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Tune in again next time. And remember, you can't spell minimally invasive surgery without sages. <laughs>